Amen. Man, I love that song. Whew. I don't think I've ever heard it with three female vocalists either. And man, if that doesn't jack you up and change your tire, <clears throat> you need a new truck. But anyway, that's Possum Kingdom coming out in me right there. Sorry about that. It happens every now and then. I'm not going to deny it. Um, but yeah, if I haven't met you, which is highly likely because I see a lot of faces I have never seen before. Uh, my name is Matthew and uh, lead pastor here. I have the privilege of doing some fun stuff um, with, with these people. So glad you guys are here. Hey, real quick, let me start with something administrative. Uh, throw that piece of technology up there. Okay, if you, let me, let me give you a little qualifier here. If you're a part of this family and you intend, and you should, on being in a community group, we would like to get some information from you. It doesn't require a name or email address or anything, but it just requires you to pull out these little computers in your pockets and uh, open your camera app, and you just take a, you know, just look at that, and it will direct you to a website. And all it's going to ask you is things like, hey, what night of the week or what time of the week is going to be best for a community group? Uh, what part of town do you live in? And, and what does your family situation look like? Kids, stuff like that, um, that kind of thing. Don't fill out the survey now, okay? Please fill it out later, but... Here's the thing, even if you have a track record with community groups, like we would still like this information uh, because every year community groups are kind of in flux and we want them to meet the needs of everybody that we have. Um, we like as many people as possible to be in community groups because I'll say it again, like Sunday mornings are great. They're fun. Uh, they, it's a time to circle the wagons and rally the troops and make sure that we're all on the same page. But like the level of community and family that we need, it can't be accomplished here on Sundays. Um, like you can't know me and I can't really know you just on Sunday mornings. And so community groups are our best shot at making sure that discipleship occurs on a relational level um, and there's vertical exchange with God to the entire family. So if you're going to be a part of this family, man, check that out. Give us that information. If it's not working, Doug, I see you trying, man. That's awesome, dude. Hey, that's good. If you can't get it to work, I can send you a website or a web address. It's, it's this thing you type in and it takes you there. It's amazing. It's just as cool as electronic mail. Um, so yeah. All right. Phones are away. Uh, we are back in the book of Mark today. We're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to go through uh, just a handful of verses here, 38 through 50. And like from a, a teaching perspective, like today's probably going to be far more topical than is my, is my normal jam. Do I hear a mouse? Oh, it's my chair. It's like a mouse on a motorcycle. Man, Judy Bloom would be so excited. Uh, it, wasn't that Judy Bloom, teachers? Was it? No? Mouse on a motorcycle? Do y'all remember that one from elementary school? Yeah. Uh, speaking of teachers, if you're in education, would you stand up for me real quick? If you're a teacher, if you work in admin, if you're any of those things, look at this, man. All over the place. And look around. Don't sit down yet. Hold on. Don't sit down yet. Um, if, you turn, if everybody else turns around and look, we've got some in the back of the room, too. Um, and then we've got some that are working with kids this morning. Look at their faces. Remember their faces. Pray for them this week. Like this week, they went back last week. Their students landed mass this week. Is that the same for you guys too? Y'all started last Thursday. You're better than the rest of us. That's great. But either way, like this is, this is crazy time. And so pray for them. Pray that they minister and love the students well. Uh, I think as far as like day-to-day -day involvement with kids um, next to parents, student, teachers probably have the most influence available. And so we want your influence to be great. And so we want to pray for you guys as often as we can. So look at their faces. Y'all do like a little 360 turn like you're, you know, showing off so people can look at your faces. Remember their faces. You don't even know their names, but pray for them and, uh, and ask God to take care of them this week and the rest of this year. Thank you guys for what you do. We appreciate you. So we're going to uh, jump in Mark chapter 38. We're going to break this into two chunks today. Um, they are very much connected to the previous two passages that we read. Uh, but just to kind of remind us where we are, Jesus is in a teaching mode with just his disciples at this point. Um, and today's pretty practical. Um, and I, I love practical. I'm one of those guys. Uh, but what's that? We're in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. It should pop up on the screen in just a moment. Um, and we're going to bounce around a little bit from here. Um, but I'll go ahead and give away a couple things. We're, we're going to talk about sin today. Like sin, not, not a popular topic, okay? It's even highly debated amongst the outside world that, that generally doesn't live within biblical family. Uh, what, what does sin even mean? And so I want to give us just kind of a, a brief idea. Like sin is, is the stuff that goes against God's design that distracts us from worship. Now that's a very vague definition, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to understand like, Sin is a universal deal. Like, we all, we all fight it. Romans 9 tells us that, you know, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And, and the rest of Romans just reminds us that none of us are without it. Like, 
we are born in a state in which we are incapable of avoiding that and pursuing God. But God, being rich in mercy, pursued us. And so that's a beautiful idea. And so um, it's also incredibly truthful and vital that we understand. Today is just, Jesus is going to be speaking very hyperbolically. Um, but I want us to look at why he is saying it to what he's trying to get across and what do we do with it. And so let me pray, and we're going to jump right in and read through. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. We thank you, God, for your word that is trustworthy, uh, that is vital. Um, and God, it is, um, it is so precious that we can use it to know you, uh, that we can use it to know who we are in light of you. And God, we can use it to make you known as well. God, today I pray that we look at it uh, with integrity and with wisdom that comes from you. Uh, so that we know how then we should live. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for his words, his teaching, his life, his sacrifice, and all the things that he afforded us so that we could have hope in you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So let's read verses 38 uh, through 41 first, and we'll talk about that, then we'll jump into the next section. So just on the tail end of the disciples arguing about who is the greatest and then Jesus picking up the child and showing him like, look, this is one of the least of these in society. Uh, you need to accept these as well in my name. And if you avoid these, if you're showing partiality, James addresses that. He calls it sin. And so Jesus is still in teaching mode. And in verse 38, it says, John said to him, teacher or rabbi, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon to afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but it is kind of flowing us into this next passage. And so application for them was that, yes, there were the 12 that were intimately following Jesus, but we see right around this timeline, Jesus also sent out 72 gave them authority to teach, to, to release demons, to heal, do all that, very much like he did with the disciples previously, the 12, right before the feeding of the multitude. And so there were the 12, but there were also more, like, you know, kind of lowercase d, disciples that were following Jesus, learning from Jesus, doing the works that he was empowering them to do in his name. And John, like, this blows my mind that it's John that says this. Like, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those synoptic gospels. But then we have John, who probably spoke with the Sean Connery accent, was very theologically correct and humble and hopeful. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's the way my brain works. But anyway, it's interesting to know that John is the one that brought this up because, in all honesty, it's a very selfish statement. Because what he says is, we saw someone, and they were doing works in your name, but they were not following us, so we asked them to stop. And so Jesus is like, no, 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 don't do that. If they're doing it in my name, like truly in my name, then there's no way they're not going to honor me. It's impossible for them to do this in my name and not soon honor me. And so don't stop them. Let them do it. If they're not against us, if they're for me, they're for you. And so they're good. So that was their application. Look around, see the people that are currently following Jesus, not just you, and, and respect them, honor them, maybe even pray for them, support them, and ho be hopeful that they're continuing to do that. Now, there were some that were, were mentioned later um, in, or earlier in the book of Matthew that were different. You know, the depart from me for I never knew you. People that are going to come up and say, you know, Jesus, I did these things in your name. I cast out demons. I did all that. He said, depart from me for I never knew you. Different circumstance, different kind of context. These were actually people that were following Jesus, doing stuff in his name by his authority. And he told the disciples, he's like, no, let them, let them do it. Celebrate it. That's great. Their application, our application um, we're not the only church in this city. We never intended to be. We never intended to be the, the best church family in this city. We never intended to be better than uh, a, a church of faithful followers down the street. Um, all we intended to be is a church in downtown for downtown for the people that live, work, and play here to make disciples um, who you know, love God, love one another, love the city. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to do it better or, or anything. We're not trying to heighten our name above anything. To be honest, like, and this may strike you as odd, if Origin ceased to exist tomorrow, but the kingdom of God grew in Greenville, South Carolina, I'd be okay with that. And so that's our mindset. And for us, the application is, if there is another faith family across the street, down the street, and they are pursuing genuinely Jesus, then that's great. That's awesome. You know, like our downtown prayers, I love Pastor Brian Haybig. Like, it, I'll be honest, like if I wasn't pastoring here, to be honest, I'd probably go and sit under him because I love that man. I love sitting and grabbing lunch with him and having him invest wisdom in me. I, I value that. 
First Prez, Grace, uh, Greenville Community Church, Dunning Church, we were able to release a pastor to go and pastor there a couple years ago. Like, we've got several partners in Greenville that are pursuing the same Christ as we are with a different family. And for them, they're not competition. Uh, they're not better or worse than us. They're on the same team. And when we see them doing these things in Jesus' name, even though they're not here in this building, in our community groups, going after the same missions that they are, it's the same Christ, the same mission, the same spirit, the same salvation for them. And so we, for that, we're grateful. That's our application. Really simple. Um, the day that we start competing with another faith family is the day that we need to stop, okay? And, and I want to make that clear. Like, you know, and, and that's probably the reason I fight branding so hard. Like, I, I struggle with it. Like, making these shirts was hard for me. Like, it was difficult. Because I, I do, like, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart and my bowels, like, I want the kingdom of God to grow regardless of nomenclature. That's what I want. And as followers of Christ, we need to desire the same exact thing because Jesus didn't come to build many churches that would build great edifices and, and build towers to heaven. No, he came to build his kingdom on people in all places at all times in several different expressions. Now, that does mean that we hold fast to, uh, you know, those concrete tenets of who Christ is, what he did, those kinds of things. So as long as we're on the same page with those non-negotiables, the truth of the gospel, we're good. We're good. And he even goes to tell them, like, if, if someone gives you a, a cup of water, provides a service to you in the name of Christ, and they're genuinely doing it, understand, man, they're going to be rewarded for that no matter how you feel. Even if you've got a sense of rivalry or whatever, that's wrong in you. It's not wrong in them. So just, man, be grateful for them. So short little application for us there. Um, and I'll be honest, too. Like, this is, this is weird, and I know that some people would, would say you're crazy for this. If there's a partner church in our city, and we feel like they need mature believers of Christ— um, it's very likely that we could ask you to go and, and sit with them and help them for a while. And, and that's okay. That may reduce our overall numbers, but the kingdom of God requires sometimes that we send our very best. And so, and we have. We've gotten to send our very best. And it hurts every time. But at the same time, that's why we're here. It, it is about the kingdom. And, and just, anyway. So, I'll get off that, that soapbox because we already talked about those. So, let's move on. So, 42 uh, through 50. And I will go ahead and point out, too, if you... Um, you may be reading the King James Version, and that's okay this morning, but understand uh, in some older translations, there's going to be some verses in the King James that are not going to be in modern English translations, and I'll, I'll cover that when we get to that in just a minute. doesn't change the meaning, doesn't change any of that, but I'll tell you why when we get to it. So let's read 42 through 50. So Jesus continuing to teach his disciples, remember the setting, the previous passage when he picked up the child, put it in his lap, could have been one of Peter's, we don't know, but either way, put him in his lap, he said, look at this little kid. Verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's getting kind of serious. Just, just hold on. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands uh, to go to hell, then with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, rip it out, pluck it out, whatever your translation says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where there a worm, where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt is lost to saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So before we even get to, to start talking about what he's saying in all of this, it's hyperbole, okay? We need to understand Jesus spoke in parable. Jesus spoke in metaphor. He spoke in hyperbole. He did that to get a point across. And the reason I'll, I'll say that and make sure that we understand that, self-mutilation and murder, even in, in Judaism, they, they, weren't, they weren't smiled upon, okay? They were off limits. They were no-no. They still are. Jesus is not telling you to tie a heavy rock around someone and drown them. He's not telling you to cut off your hand. He's not telling you to pluck out your eyes. He's not telling you to cut off your feet. He's making a statement, uh, which we'll get to. And so again, Jesus has this, this personal time. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Like they retreated to a house in Capernaum, kind of their home base operations in Galilee, just to sit and teach the disciples. This is what he was doing with the 12. He was investing in them kingdom knowledge, kingdom culture, so that when he leaves, after the resurrection and the ascension, they may go and grow his kingdom. Okay, and this is no exception. He's spending time to talk about them, talk to them, not so much now about the do's, but the things that we don't like a whole lot, the do-nots. 
Because we're not talking about a legalistic mindset, but we are talking about that when we live in a kingdom culture with a kingdom mind, there are standards in which have been set. They've been set by the nature, the heart, the holiness of God, not some list of rules and regulations to keep us from having fun. There's a reason that Jesus gives us every do and do not. And in this case, he's giving the disciples kind of some do nots in the form of some very colorful and just confusing language. And so he starts off with this in verse 42. He said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So previously he picked up a child, put him in his lap, and he said, Hey, you know, look at this child and understand uh, if, if you need to receive these. And we talked about, like, in this culture, like kids, they weren't valued like we value children. Like when we have a baby, we throw showers, we do all this kind of stuff, you know, Mufasa, we hold them up, you know, that kind of stuff, like it's really, really amazing. Like for them, kids, were, kids weren't viewed like that, okay? Kids were great, and they were a heritage, your quiver's full, a lot of stuff, but you also understood that this child is going to keep me from my crops, this child's going to keep me from my job, there was no daycare, nothing like that. This was you stayed at home and you raised this little child, and because of that, you lost hair, you lost time, you lost sleep great, you're going to grow up into a productive member of Jewish society, but at the same time, you're driving me crazy. Okay, that was, that was children. All right? And so he said, you need to accept people like this in society, children being the bottom of society, to be honest. He said, you need to make sure that you're accepting them as well, that you're serving all. If you desire to be first, you actually need to be last and serve all, even these. And so now, in this place, he's taking one of these and he's saying, uh, just know, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And so now he's just telling them one of these do-nots. Don't cause anyone, regardless of their social status, to fall into sin. Period. It, colorful language. And, and Zach was joking. He was asking me if, how we were going to get the millstone up to the front today. And I'm like, well, it would scratch their floor. Um, and, and Neil was going to drag one up, but we decided not to. But just the idea of, hey, in very colorful, hyperbolic language, just do not, do not lead one of these impressionable followers of Jesus astray. Do not. Pretty clear. But with very colorful language. Like Jesus is trying to get a point across that it's, it's that serious. If you take someone that is a new follower of Christ... Okay, someone that is an infant, we would call that a spiritual infant. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know where to find food. Uh, they don't know how to clothe themselves in righteousness yet. It is our job as those who are more spiritually mature to walk with them, to disciple them. That is what we are called to do. If we take them and instead of investing truth in them, we invest in egregious error in them and point them away from Christ. He said, look, it's not good for you. Not good for them, but it's worse for you. He said, it'd be better if you were just drowned now. Okay? Got it? Here's the do not. Do not lead anyone to sin. And, and for that one, like I don't even think that we have to rationalize and say, well, why would you give us that do not? Because that would be so great. No, that one's pretty clear. Like, do not lead anyone to sin. Instead, lead people to Christ. That's the positive on that. But just the negative is don't, don't lead people to sin. The consequences are bad for them, really bad for you. Don't do that. And he's telling this, like, I think it's very important that we think about, like, the conversational context in this moment. He's talking to 12 men whom he's been investing in for the past couple of years now that have been watching him love people, that have been watching him heal people, that have been watching him share authoritative speech that he should not possess. He's the son of a carpenter, and he's telling these guys, don't do that. Don't do that. But he doesn't even really have to explain it. Because it's, it's one of those do-nots that we just like, yep, you know what, now that you said it, that makes really good sense, Jesus. It's kind of like me telling my kids not to play in the street. You know, that's like, do not play in the street. Yeah, nobody's going to argue with that. Why don't you play in the street? Because you're going to get run over by a car. Yeah, my kids, yeah, they may not understand that, but adults that wear both legs of their pants, they're going to understand. Yeah, I completely get why you're not letting your kids play in the street. It's an understandable do not. Believe it or not, my children have parameters. Believe it or not, we as Christ followers have parameters for the glory of God, for the goodness and the holiness of his pursuit. Like we have parameters. This one, do not lead someone astray. Then he goes into a bit more 
colorful language that if anyone would have heard, they probably would have been like, ah, I don't know if this one's as clear, Jesus. So in verse 43, uh, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I'm sure a lot of the disciples just kind of were like, mm, what? Fish with these hands. Aren't living with these hands. Well, they used to. But at the same time, just odd, out of left field. Would not have matched Jewish culture at all because, like, you know, mutilating your flesh was off limits. Not just minorly off limits, but really off limits. So Jesus is trying to get to another point. He said, if your, sin calls, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. This hell thing that he's going to reference several times, the word is actually Gehenna. Or Gehenna, it was a place on the south side of the city that way, way back, like sacrifices were made to pagan gods. And then later, that was stopped by the, by the authority. That was stopped. And then after that, all of your trash and your refuse was taken out there to burn. They burned their trash. And it burned all day long. They didn't have trash service, so what they do? They burned their garbage. They burned other stuff too. Anything that's refuse, that's waste, you don't want, goes in that pit and it burns. It's hot. It's always burning. It stinks. And nobody really wants to go there. And he just tells them. Like, you know, just a minute ago, if you lead somebody astray, it would be better if you drowned. If you have a sin and you're letting it stay and your hand is causing it, you don't cut off your hand, it would be better for you, you know, to cut that off instead of being thrown into that trash pit where everything's burning. Okay? Continuing on. He says, if your foot causes you to sin, same thing, cut it off. Cut it off. Because it would be better for you to enter life lame with two feet uh, than lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Continuing on verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's like, look, if you have a part of you that is causing you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. You know what he's telling them? Let me, let me just make it as simple as possible. Three words. You ready? If you're taking notes, it's going to take up a whole page. Do not sin. Do not sin. We hate do nots, right? I remember, like, as a kid, uh, we came from a naval family. And I remember the first time going to the USS Yorktown to tour it. All of those ropes... Those were do-nots. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to crawl under every one of them. And I did. And it smelled like feet. It was rough. Do-nots, man, they, they make us just kind of want to do them all the more. But there's reason. There's heart. There's all kinds of things behind this. Because he's saying do not, because if you do, you may run the risk of something that's worse. Now, he's telling this to the 12 disciples, Right? The 12 disciples who, by all intents and purposes, they should have been like already committed followers of Jesus. But this is also going to be disseminated from the disciples to many other people. Maybe people that do not yet know Christ, that are not yet yoked with him through uh, salvation. And he's saying, look, if you have an option between cutting off sin or going to hell, let me just tell you, you should probably cut off sin. Because you don't want to go there. Do not sin. Now, for believers, we, we kind of walk this tightrope because we know that in Christ, or we should know, every sin I've ever committed and will commit through the work, the sufficiency, and the goodness of Christ has been covered. It's been taken care of. He knew all of those when he died for me, like he did. He had that ability to look and see all the things that I was going to do. He died for me anyway. He died for you anyway. And that's crazy. To know that, that all of those are, are covered by his blood, like sufficient sacrifice, that is Christ. Like he knows that. But at the same time, he's telling his followers, he's like, look, even though it's covered, don't do it. Don't do it. In the beginning of John, we've got this passage in uh, John 2, 13 through 22. Let me read this really quick. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. 
poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This was the first time that he did this. He did this later towards the tail end of his earthly ministry. But in this place, do you, do you know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was making sure that the house of God was free of distractions. Because he went in and he saw these people making money off of the fact that people were coming there to do one thing. They should have been coming there to worship. They traveled from all over the place just to be here and worship. And he walks in and he sees people selling sacrifices. He sees the money changers making money on exchange rates. He sees all these things. And he flips tables and himself a little bit. Like it says that he sits down and he makes a whip of cords. It doesn't just say he grabbed some cords and made a whip. No, he sat down. And he made, fashioned a whip of cords. It took time. He thought about what he was going to do. Then he went and he flipped tables and he chased people out. And he said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Subtext, do not turn my father's house into something that it was not supposed to do. What it was supposed to do was to be a place, a congregating point, a time, a space in all humanity for people to gather around the goodness and the efficacy of the holy God. But instead, people had turned it into something else. Do you know what that is? That's sin. It's exactly what sin does. Sin gets in here, which is now the new location of the temple that we're told in the epistles that the, 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 the object of our worship has not changed. The means by which we worship has not changed, but the location of the temple has. Now it's here and now it's here. When sin gets in, it's the same as the tables in which stuff's being sold. It's the same as the money changers. And Jesus desires to flip it over and chase it out. The effect of sin in my life, your life, if we're following Christ, it is a distraction from us actually pursuing the one thing that we need, and that is the Father, through which we are given through the hope and the result of Christ. And Jesus says, get out. The heart of Christ says, do not sin, because it inhibits your ability to worship the Father. So if you have something that leads you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. The latter parts of this, verse 50 and uh, 49 and 50, and by the way, if you notice that there are a couple verses missing, um, the King James Version was built on manuscripts that were uh, a little bit older, and there's nothing wrong with the King James Version. I'm not going to bash King, King James, but it was built on manuscripts from 12th, 13th century. Good, like for what Thomas Cranmer did, amazing translating work. But now, modern English translations, we have, we have manuscripts that go back further, 2nd, 3rd century. And we've looked, and some of these things were added or repeated, probably in good nature or just out of habit, maybe something that they said or a creed, but we've removed them from modern English translations. That's not why they're there. But anyway... Uh, if you want to talk more about that, we can. I'm kind of a nerd on translations, and I, I like it. But it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 49, I think this is just a continuation of this idea as to hell is going to be bad. The preceding verse says, where worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Like, look, uh, if you are going to let sin get there, take root, rule your life, this is where you're going to end up if you don't cut it off. The only way to sufficiently cut it off is through Christ, which we'll get to in just a minute. And then at the end, he adds in this other thing, kind of bringing it back to the beginning of whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. He says, now look, uh, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves be at peace with one another. He's basically saying, look, sin also has effect on other people. So if you're listening to me, here's your due. Man, just love each other. Take care of each other. Salt preserves. Salt adds value. Salt is all of these things. Like, have that amongst you. And so make sure that you keep that with you. Very much like what I also call kind of the Great Commission Junior and Matthew. You know, same idea about being salty. You know, that kind of idea. You can go back and look at that. Look me up. Uh, but either way, like, look, have peace with one another. Uh, don't cause someone to stumble. Take care of all people. If you want to be first, be last, like we talked about last week. And he's closing out this kind of teaching time of just like, look, man, make each other better. Make each other better. That, that's a pretty good do. We like that. 
So what do we do with these do nots? Kind of going back here. Um, the first we looked at in John 2, I think this is the first thing that we need to do with this. The first is that we understand that Jesus took, ten, took sin seriously and we need to as well. Jesus took sin seriously and we need to as well. Um, if we are embarking on this idea of be holy for I am holy, we can't do that while letting sin just sit. I mean, he said, look, you be holy. You be separate because I am holy. Be separate. Uh, you do that. We can't do that simultaneously as we're just letting sin just kind of sit and hang out. It doesn't work like that. He said, do not sin. Do not sin. If we're viewing Scripture as authority, if we're viewing Christ's words as authority, uh, we need to hear that. And even if it doesn't make sense to us and it doesn't feel good to say that somebody's telling me not to do something, understand the heart of Christ as he desires good for you, good for me. He desires the very best for you, the best for me, and he knows that's not sin. That's not just letting it hang out and be there. Jesus went into the temple and he said, get these distractions out. Same idea needs to reside in me. Same idea. Now, for some of you, you're, you're asking the question, well, what, what is sin? And you're, you're not being extemporaneous. No, no, no. It means that you haven't been exposed to Scripture enough to actually know what sin is. And that's, that's okay. That's okay. Because there's kind of a simple solution to that. Um, you figure out your best way to actually expose yourself to Scripture regularly and sacrificially and allow God's Word to permeate you. You hide it in your heart so that you may not sin against Him. That's what David said. Worked for him most of the time. Sometimes it didn't. But either way, man after God's own heart even with the screw-ups. Not excusing sin, but acknowledging them. So for some of you who are sitting there, I don't even know what sin is. Well, sin is missing the mark, but we need to know what the mark is. The mark is here. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Find ways to regularly expose yourself to Scripture and pray that God uses that to change you from the inside out. Figure that out. If you're struggling with doing that, talk to your community group leader, which you'll have in just a couple of weeks. Talk to your past community group leader. Talk to me. Talk to Zach. Talk to Neil. Talk to Andrew. Talk to one of our wives. Uh, talk to, to Ashley back there, by the way. Wish her happy birthday. She's our children's ministry director. Talk to her. Uh, just ask us, hey, how do, how do I read scripture? What do I need to do? And maybe you need to listen instead. But either way, uh, find ways to get it in and hear it. Um, Jesus takes sin seriously. We need to as well. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Paul writing to the church at Rome, which was kind of eaten up with like this, this carnal way of living. I mean, they were in Rome, by the way. And he says, well, what shall we say then? Or we continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more. And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is one of our ways of taking sin seriously. We have to understand why Christ came. Like at a root level, we have to understand why Christ came. Yes, Christ came to be the sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves. He came to be that perfect spotless lamb who lived a life with all the temptation and more that we could ever possibly come across. And he chose to die in perfection for our imperfection. And we need to understand that that was a huge price. And we commit ourselves to following after that, abandoning our sin and choosing him instead. We have to understand, like, our natural response uh, is to do all of the things that Christ told us to do not. But our supernatural response, on the other hand, is to understand, if I have given that up, if I have put it to death, I cannot allow myself to breathe life back into it. Jesus killed it. And he died to kill it. And so I need to make sure that it stays dead. He says, what shall we say then? Are we continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more? No! No! Christ put a nail in it. Let it stay dead. We'll come to how in just a minute. So with this, just we need to look at the way that Jesus looks at sin, and we need to pray, God, let me feel the same way. Let me feel the same way. Let me view sin the way you do. Think about Every action that Jesus took from the time that he was born as a baby with no fanfare in which the angels had to sing his praises because people didn't know that they were supposed to yet, from then all the way to the cross and then kicking death in the teeth, conquering death, walking out of the grave, ascending back to heaven, it was all so that sin would no longer hold me captive. It was all so that sin could no longer hold you captive. Abandon it in favor of Christ. And not just on Sundays. So that leads us to number two. Simply have the same mind that is Christ. Jesus takes it seriously, so should we. Number two, we just need to deal with our sin. Need to deal with our sin. 
Number one, we need to acknowledge that it's real because I do believe that there's a movement within the church. Well, you know, Christ has saved me from all things, so it doesn't really matter what I do. That last passage in Romans begs to differ, but yes, we need to acknowledge sin is real, but then we need to deal with it. 1 John 1, 9 just tells us that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If sin comes in, if it happens and it will, that's not license or liberty, but it's just understanding. When it comes in, we confess. We confess. Do you know what confess literally means? To say it out loud to God. Say it to God. Whatever that sin may be, little sin, big sin, massive sin, all sin, uh, we view them on scales. Jesus doesn't. Whatever it is, we confess. We just, we just tell it to God. Because again, Jesus goes into the temple to get rid of the distractions. This is what sin does when it comes in us. It clouds our vision. It veils our eyes. It keeps us from seeing the purpose, the plan, the mission, the goodness, the holiness, all of those things about God that we celebrate. That's what sin does when it gets in here and just stays in here. We need to get rid of it. We need to offload it. We need to confess it. And that's the way that we do it. We confess it to God with a spirit of repentance. God, I'm telling you what I've done, and my desire is that I don't go back to it. You put a nail in it. I want it to stay there. I want it to stay dead. Confess it. And it doesn't just mean, God, I'm sorry. I screwed up again. I know, how many times have we done that dance? Don't, no, not a raise of hands. Don't, don't show on your fingers. But how many times, like remembering back, like, God, oh, I did it again. Repentance is a little bit different. Like repentance that leads to this is actually understanding that this sin that is clouding me, it actually hurts God, and I don't want to do it anymore. And so I give it to him by telling him, God, this, this is what I did. I know it's not what you wanted don't want to do it again. I don't want to do it again. Confess it. James 5.16 takes it a step further. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person has great power at his working. So yes, we confess to Christ, but believe it or not, we confess to one another too. Confess to one another. When was, when was the last time that you actually told someone about your sin struggles, not because they were the ones that you offended, but because you wanted them to come alongside of you so that you wouldn't do it again. Because that's the point. That's the point. We're not doing this for forgiveness. Like, we've already been granted forgiveness because we've confessed to the Father. That was his directive. This is about the horizontal relationship and what we do for one another. He says, confess your sin one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Man, we've been given family for great great reason. Love one another, one of the do's. It's there for a huge reason because he knows we weren't designed to follow him as a bunch of individual, isolated people. No, he wanted us to follow him as a group of people, as a family, together, utilizing family at every possible turn. If I am struggling with a sin after confessing it to God, the very next thing that I need to do, I need to go to one of my brothers and I need to say, man, I need to tell you. I need to tell you. It's kicking my butt and I need your help. And their response is, okay. I'll help. But not only do they pray for you, but now they're also in your circle. <laughs> and they know what you're struggling with. And hopefully, hopefully, if that's you, if that's me, we ask. We ask good questions. Confess it to one another. And, and so that healing may occur, but also so that help can be there. So that help can be there. Like a very physical example of this, like not necessarily sin-related, but it kind of all goes to the same place. If you're struggling to, uh, to meet your daily needs but you're also expecting uh, your family to take care of you and to help you, they can't know that you're struggling unless you tell them. Same thing with sin. If there's a sin that we're battling and it keeps raising its head and kicking us in the teeth and we don't know what to do with it, your brother and your sister, you may put on a good show, but they're probably not going to know that you're fighting it unless you actually tell them. Confess it to them so that A, they can pray for you, so that B, they can actually talk to you on a regular basis and say, hey, how you doing with that? How's that going? What can, what can I do? What can I do? Man, there's great privilege in being family like that. Yes, it means that we confess our shortcomings and our failures and all of those things, our very sin. But it also means we have an opportunity to intercede, A, B, to actually be like Jesus to them and to remind them, do not. Or to remind me, do not. It's not good, not what Jesus wants. Confess it to one another. Number three, and this is, yeah, 
we just need to, to recognize our struggles, like be honest about ourselves. Everyone's going to have a different, like we say, pet sin. I don't want to downplay what sin is and make it look cute or anything like that. But most of us have like a, a particular unique kind of sin thing that we struggle with. If we've been following Jesus a while, we may have put to death 94.3% of sins. Maybe, maybe not. But either way, it's that, you know, that 0.5 point whatever that's just kind of sitting there popping you. And it comes up over and over and over and over and over over and over. Know, know yourself. Like ask, ask God, God, shine a light on the thing that I cannot let go of, that I cannot truly let go of. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, love this passage, maybe out of order for you, Rob, sorry if I am. This came up uh, at our men's, our men's retreat that we did a few months ago, and there are a few of those books left. If you want one, grab one. I think everybody that spoke for one's had one. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated as the right hand of uh, throne of God. We've talked about verse 2 the past few weeks, but verse 1, it draws a picture of like Romans getting ready to run a race. Do you know what they'd do before they'd run a race? They would strip. They'd get naked. Why? Because they didn't want anything hindering their ability to run fast and to run the race well. Just like my buddies that I grew up with that are swimmers. They would shave their arms and shave their legs, and I'm like, you are a weirdo. That's okay, but they wanted to go fast. They didn't want anything to slow them down, create drag in the water. Roman runners, same idea. They're like, look, I'm going to run my best if there's no like baggy clothing on me. So they would get to the starting line, and they would run naked. Because they didn't want anything to hold them back. For us, the race that has been set before us is a life pursuing Christ. And he said, look, lay aside every weight or hindrance and sin which clings so closely. If there is a sin that, that has a chain on you and you are trying to run after Jesus and every time you get far enough, that chain stretches out and yanks you back, get rid of it. We have to know what is in me, where I struggle, where I go to instead of Christ. And be honest with it. Be honest about it. See it. Call it what it is. And cut it off. I do think it's interesting the, the things that Jesus pitched out there. He's like our eyes, our hands, our feet. Is it what you see? Is it what you do? Is it what you run to? Now in the book of Matthew, on the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus actually used this phrase again at a different place, and he was using it to talk about lust, sexual struggles. He's like, look, don't even look at a woman lustfully because that's, that's sin. And he's like, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, the things you do, cut it off. Again, hyperbole, but the idea is what is it that leads me towards this sin? What is the temptation? Know yourself. Know, is it, know about like, what is the pattern that leads you to this place. Like, I don't even have to give graphic examples. We all know ourselves, and we know the sins that we struggle with. We can, like, objectively look at that and say, hey, here are the patterns and the things that lead me towards that. We're not taking a legalistic view and saying that everybody needs to cover their faces, cover their ankles, wear long dresses, not saying any of that. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But that's not what I'm saying, and that's not joking. But what we need to do is understand on my part, what is it that leads me towards sin? If it's something that I look at or something that I start to do or something that I run towards, I need to stop it before I look at it, before I start to do it, before I start to run towards it. Because all of these things can be used for the glory of God unless they're not. Hands aren't bad, eyes aren't bad, feet aren't bad. We can see the glory of God. We can speak to the glory of God. We can run towards him and run away from sin. All of those things are good unless we're allowing them to be bad, to be sin. Know our temptations. Know our struggles. Go for that. And here's what we do with those. The first, uh, once we recognize that, yes, we do all those things. We see it. We confess it. We confess it to one another. We recognize our struggles. But A, this is probably the most important. And we pray for strength. Understand that this battle is not the one that we have to fight by ourselves. It's not one that Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you not to do that stuff, but then I'm going to pull back. He's not doing that. No, he's given us the very spirit of God to convict us, be the changing agent that is in us, to be a seal of our salvation, not to just sit there, not just to be a tattoo, but to actually be a living, breathing agent of God. 
And so we, we seek strength from God. We're like, God, through your spirit that lives in me, the very temple and dwelling place of you now here on earth, God, give me the strength to avoid this. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm tired of, of going here and doing these things. Give me the strength to avoid it. You, God, please, beg him, throw yourself down before him, do whatever you have to do. View sin the way Jesus did. Jesus died for it. We need to die for it too and put it to death. So beg God, God, give me strength. Don't let me do this. Don't let me blow up at my wife and kids. Don't let me run to pornography. Don't let me go to the bottle. Don't let me do all these things. Keep me from them, whatever they may be. The list is long. And it varies from person to person. Whatever it is, name it, call it, seek God for strength. Number two, 1 Corinthians uh, 6.18. Do we have that one in there, Rob? No? kind of goes back to that Hebrews 12 idea then. Sorry, I didn't give you one. I had a lot more scripture than normal today. Second, like after we know what it is, be wise. Be wise. Like, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. If you know your patterns and you know the struggle, be wise. Invite someone into your struggle. You know, like men, like I don't think we got any kids sitting in here right now. They're going to understand. Men, if you struggle when your wife leaves town, what you look at, what you do, um, call one of your brothers and say, hey, my wife's leaving town this weekend. Would you check on me? Be wise. You know yourself probably better than anybody else. Be wise. Here, here's, here's other be wise. This is crazy. I worked in a gym as my first career, okay? I, I understand that there, there are places and directions that I can't look in a gym. I get it. I know. It, if your gym is not good for you, find another gym. Hey, that's be wise. You're like, hey, you're telling me to sacrifice something so that I don't sin. I am. I really am. I, I'm serious. Maybe you work out at home. You're like, well, that's not fun. Well, neither is sin. Let's, let's kill it. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's true. Like, man, if you struggle with what you look at, yes, you invite God in to help you, give you strength, but you also exercise wisdom that he gave you. If you're struggling with a counterpart at work, you're having feelings for them you shouldn't instead of your spouse, move your desk. Get another job. You're like, you're telling me to quit my job. If it means the chance between uh, the choice between you entering into sin or staying away from sin, we cut it off. You're like, that's an extreme example. Jesus' examples were more extreme. Pluck your eye out, cut your hand off, cut your foot off. More extreme. Hyperbole, yes. I'm not speaking hyperbole. Sin is that serious. Because it inhibits our ability to see, know, and follow after Jesus. That's why he came. He offered us relationship, not a, not a status change on Facebook, but like a true relationship. And then, again, bring, bring someone in. Bring someone into your struggle. Dude, men, that is why we are here. That is why we are called brothers. Adelphi, that, that, that's it. That's what family is. Men, if you struggle with one thing and you know that another guy is going to understand, invite him in. You love him. He loves you. They want to help you. Invite him in. Say, hey, this is what I struggle with. Women, if, if you're struggling... Like mothers, like I, in the past several years, one thing that I never thought that I would, that I would see and witness um, is, is like mothers struggling so hard but being so silent about it. Moms, young mothers, let me tell you, if you are struggling with motherhood and it is tearing you apart and it is causing you to be distracted from worshiping and following after Jesus, which is his intent for us, Jesus doesn't want that. Invite another mother into your struggle. Go to a mother who's already been there for a while, who has kids that are out of diapers, that are, that are not tugging at their leg every day, and say, how did you get through this? Help me. Invite them in. We have to stop thinking that my relationship with Christ is so private that I can't share it. We also have to extend that to my sin is so private that I cannot share it. God never intended for us to walk around struggling as isolated individuals. You know that uh, Acts chapter 2 passage that we talk about so frequently is they were, they were together and they had all things in common? That all things, A-L-L, we've talked about that, what it means in Greek. It means all. All things in common. Not just money, not just homes, not just goods and services, but life. Share life with one another. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. Share. So that we may not sin. Because he just kind of said, hey, don't do it. Now, there was a lot attached to that, but it was just, don't do it. 
And he wouldn't have told the disciples that, by the way, if he didn't love them dearly. He wouldn't be telling us the same thing by extension if he didn't love us dearly. This is why we encourage community groups so much. I mean, this, this is the very reason we encourage community groups so much. Now, granted, spontaneous community and family, it happens, it does, and we applaud that, and that's great, but we can't really know each other and be known by each other one day a week. To be honest, we really can't know each other and be known by each other two days a week. It requires more, but this that we do here, it leads to community groups. Community groups lead to more, leads to family on family, actually walking, talking, breathing, having all things in common. Let's do this. We're going to have one more song to worship, and I know that we are long in the tooth right now. Um, but as they come up to, to lead us in one more song, just for a minute, say, uh, God, where do I need to invite someone in? What's the thing that I'm battling, that I've kept quiet, that I need to share? And once we, we know what that is, maybe you're perfect and you don't have anything. That's great one of you in here, that's, that's awesome. But the rest of us, uh, whatever that one thing is, we, we start with, God, thank you for revealing this. This is what it is. I'm confessing it to you now. I don't want it anymore. Would you take it? And then number two, let's be wise. Let's be wise. Understand, Jesus loves us enough to say do not. And so let's figure out what steps we need to take to not do it. And maybe that means this week, even before community groups start, over coffee, over dinner, over a phone call. Say, hey, um, I, I want to tell you something because I love you and I think you love me. This is what I'm battling. Would you, would you pray? Would you ask? Would you help? That's it. That's it. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that he loves us enough to tell us what to do and what not to do, even when those do not seem really easy. I do pray on behalf of our faith family, God, um, let us avoid sin and pursue you. Because sin's real, the effects of it are real. Uh, you've taken away the eternal consequence for those of us who are bound to you, but God, the relational and circumstantial consequences are still there. Help us to put those to death. Help us to think of sin the way you think of sin. Help us to think of holiness the way you think of holiness. Help us to, to ask when we need help, you and others. And Father, I pray that as a result, you give us that big, beautiful theological word of sanctification. You make us look more and more like Jesus. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.